You know, and I, I really believe that outdoors, nature, and adventure, like kind of those activities, are the best place for us to actually grow and experience this thing around social-emotional learning. Something about outdoors is always about personal best. It's always about situational awareness. They're always about skills development. So the, so the best athlete won't always be the best climber, right? It's the person who masters the skills. The best skier will not be the best athlete. It'll be the person that focuses on a mastering the skills, right? So, so they're progressive skill-based. They create opportunities for us to have self-discovery. You know, they're personal best oriented. Again, this idea of controlling yourself in an environment that you have no control over. That's the stuff that life is made of. And I actually think that outdoors and nature offer that opportunity to everybody who shows up. Everybody who shows up can have that experience outdoors. And for communities of color, for marginalized community, what I know is that those experiences are the ones that build your humanity, your confidence, that help you understand beyond racism's impact on you. And a simple example, and we can, you all can go test this, I believe that women who spend time outdoors have a much higher body concept than the average person because everything in the world wants women to hate their bodies. I think outdoors activities, hiking, biking, climbing, you know, there are these things we do. It actually reframes your relationship to your body around its ability to do work instead of the aesthetic. And I believe that's an opportunity for everybody and for, for communities of color. It's an opportunity that we don't see in our arsenal. So that's my message to them, is tell me about the humans you want your kids to be. And my answer is always gonna be take them outside. That's Anthony Taylor, and this is The Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you because this episode is a gemstone. Let me first, I guess, back up and just say for a wee bit of context that as many of you know, the outdoors has played no small part in my life arc, my personal transformation. In almost every conceivable way, I'm a different human, a better human because I make copious use of the outside spaces available to me. I think most would agree that time in nature is powerful, it's healing, it connects you to your community, of course, to yourself. And so much of it is about connecting with what it means to essentially be human. The trails, the mountains, the ocean, the pools, these things mean everything to me. They are spaces that I access freely, spaces I consider to be an unalienable right, and spaces I freely admit I basically take for granted. But unfortunately, the uncomfortable truth is that the outdoors, parks, nature in general, are spaces where historically, not exactly everyone has been entirely welcome. This is a paradigm we must of course diligently work to dismantle. And it's the spark that illuminates the work of today's guest, Anthony Taylor, a truly extraordinary human who has spent essentially his entire life advocating for greater participation and access to outdoor environments. 
and also the second guest to appear in my continuing series of conversations from my week in Minneapolis. The former commissioner for Minneapolis's Parks and Open Spaces and current senior vice president of equity, outdoors and nature for YMCA of the North, Anthony is at now 62 years of age, a very model of anti-aging. He's a crazy fit outdoors enthusiast, an accomplished ultra cyclist, and the founder of the Major Taylor Bicycling Club of Minnesota. By the way, as a quick aside, Anthony tells an absolutely mind-bending story about Major Taylor, who was the world's first black sports superstar. That story alone is worth tuning in for, but uh, I digress. In any event, in addition, Anthony serves on the League of American Bicyclists Equity Advisory Board, as well as the board of the National Brotherhood of Skiers. He's the co-founder of Cool Meets Cause, an outreach program that teaches girls from North Minneapolis to snowboard. And he served as the adventure director for the Loppet Foundation, a program that provides year-round outdoor activities for youth in Minneapolis. This conversation is D-O-P-E dope. It's amazing and it's coming up quick, but first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailored fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm going to tell you this story. A few years back, 
I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go. And it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia. And he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive. And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. Okay, Anthony Taylor. So I suppose in the most general sense, this is a conversation about the nature of outdoor recreation to empower, to enliven, and to inspire. We walk through Anthony's origin story, his love for the outdoors, of course, as well as his accomplishments as a cyclist. But the focus is really on the important work that he's doing as an outdoor activist and youth educator. It's also a history lesson on race, class, privilege, and gender in the outdoors, and the many ways that we can work to eradicate the invisible boundaries that exist in these spaces even today. It's also about the transformative lessons that can only be learned through adventure, why these lessons are imperative to youth development and our own innate humanity, and why outdoor sport and time spent in nature isn't just recreation, it's a human right. I can pretty much guarantee this conversation is going to impact you, motivate you to get outside more. And my hope is that it will also help foster ways in which you can advance greater outdoor inclusivity within your community. I learned a ton from Anthony. This one is definitely a fave. So here we go. This is me and Anthony Taylor. 
I mean, you're kind of a community leader at large, right? Like you're just sort of out there in the outdoor spaces, you know, trying to get people excited about being outdoors. You're with the YMCA now, right? Is that yeah, the official? It's, that's it's, it's well, you know, and it's, I should say it's it's like the job. But I but I think you're right. I, I um I, I feel like I'm an accidental advocate. I, I really had the great, you know, opportunity, I don't know, seven years ago to you know, really step back from business entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And then I decided what I was gonna do. And, and this new startup organization called the Lopet Foundation was about to do this big capital campaign and, and do something that hadn't been done, which was do a partnership with a park and program it. And, and uh, from really from where we are right now, you know, we're five minutes from Theodore Worth Park, which mm-hmm. is this amazing park in the middle of the city, mm-hmm. you know, the same size as Central Park. As a matter of fact, is it really that big? Is that wow. big? And and so we had this idea of well, let's build this this outdoors instead of a health club where you go in and work out. Uh-huh. This is a health club building where you go in, but everything pushes you outside. Right. So you come in, change clothes, go for a mountain bike ride, go for a ski, go for a trail run, go for a bike ride. You know, and that was the idea. But but really, what was unique about it is that it was it was cropped right in the middle of the densest population of African-Americans in the Twin Cities, mm, right? Mm. So if we're gonna do this, we have an obligation, right? To connect this geography to the black community in North Minneapolis, right? Yeah. Um, and so that began me working really in community. And, and, you know, I, and what I say is like, you know, everybody thinks they know the solution from public schools. Well, and, and I say that the, the truth of the matter is that it's like, the only thing that makes you an expert on being a parent is not having kids, uh-huh. right? It's, it's the same <laughs> yeah, yeah. thing, right? So we know all the solutions for public schools mm-hmm. until you're in a public school. Mm-hmm. You know all the solutions around working in the African community you know, or working in uh, under-resourced communities or communities where they're challenged or the worst performing schools, however you care. You know how to do that mm-hmm. until you're doing it, right? Mm-hmm. And that was a formative experience. That was seven years ago, eight years ago. And it, it just changed the way that I do work. Um, In what way? Is that one, I, I think um, it changed the way I view the people or the community, because I think that the way that we start, you know, often we, we do this in youth development, we do this with communities of color, we do it with challenged communities, is that we believe they need to be fixed. Like we actually believe that, you know, truth of the matter is something's wrong and we can fix it, mm-hmm. right? Rather than thinking about them as really this whole person responding to all the inputs on them. in the real foundation of them is that that they are an asset to be cultivated and developed, mm-hmm. right? And that they will then be part of creating solutions to, to, to make themselves mm-hmm. stronger, better. You know what I mean? And so, you know, you make that shift mentally and then you literally start doing programming differently, you know? And that, that's From what I mean. From the perspective of respecting and empowering the young people well, and, and you trusting know, in them to basically forge the future that we're trying to repair. And you know what else is children don't exist alone. Do you know any kids who exist alone? You know any kids who <laughs> no. buy groceries? No. You know any kids? Some, you know, but I mean, generally, so even mm. that is one of those things that you shift as you go, it's not a child, it's a family. Like, so if you're gonna, if you're gonna actually influence a child, who do you really have to influence? The parents. The parents. Yeah. And if you're really gonna be influence the parents, who do you have to be? You have to be the cool uncle that shows up on the weekend and says the same thing the parents say. Right. 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 
Well, the cool uncle is often more influential on the child's behavior because the kids don't want to hear it from the parent. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. I'm saying so. So that's a fun. So now you're a partner to the parent. Same values, same perspective, different voice. Mm-hmm. Right. So so that is a that's a dramatically different approach to working with youth and working with families. Right. And who's the real influencer? The parent. Mm-hmm. So now all of a sudden you start. So you see what I'm saying? It's like it's a. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's that's a very that's just one way that it influenced the work, you know, around right. it. But um, it, it's just that that's an. And I learned a lot, like being in those schools. You know, we think educators are a challenge. Well, I don't. You know, our educators a challenge. Our parents the challenge. Our kid, who's the challenge? Yeah, but when yeah, you yeah. work in schools, you have a lot of people in the ecosystem. Right, and you're constrained by the bureaucracy and the traditions that are baked into it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and so there is the the bureaucracy built into it. Now, you know, post George Floyd, no one actually has a problem saying that the system is the challenge and that systemic racism, right, historical Mm -hmm. marginalization. I mean, you know, all those things are real, and so therefore, where we have to work together and influence that is changing what we change the people or we start impacting the system that are impacting Mm -hmm. the people. Right, that that perspective or that um, idea about how to solve the problem spans the spectrum from let's just blow it up completely to, well, we need to work piecemeal within the system. We kind of know how that works. Nothing really seems to ever change in a fundamental way when you do that. But what really forges real change? How do you see, you know, the progress within our, you know, generational lifetime? Yeah, well, and and that's, you know, I, I think, you know, the the idea of changing in a generational lifetime, like that is actually a really big idea that it, this this is generational change. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I think, you know, even when you say that, I mean, think about the times, you know, you know, as an adult over time where when you talk to people about what's happening and they think about it in this moment, right? Versus it being generational, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. that even that idea is like really- Right, the, it's the legacy of decades past. That's exactly right. But when right. you look at the young people, I mean, imagine you're a parent, right? How old are your kids? 10 and 16. 10 and 16, all right. So you're a 10 year old kid, you're growing up amidst everything that's happening here. What does it look like when you're 40? You know, when they inherit the legacy of what's transpiring now, that gives me hope and optimism. Well, you, you know, it, it gives me hope and I agree. I, it really gives me hope and optimism, but I will say that, you know, one of the things that's changed is that 40 year olds, right? And actually even longer that I, and I think Minnesota is a really great example of this. And I think, I don't you know, the East Coast is even a stronger example of this actually, is that, that if you talk to someone old enough, if you talk to your grandparents, they will tell you they remember when they weren't white. Mm-hmm. Right. So in Minnesota, what we have going on is we got the Swedes, the Finns, the Norwegians, the Jews, the Germans. You got all, you got all those, right? Somalians too. Some, that they're new. Those are mm-hmm. that's new to this, and they always been black. I'm saying that if you talk to people old enough, they will remember when white people weren't white. Because Meaning like the Irish in New York City or whatever. It's really, like absolutely, the, the Irish in New York who City. Who is the underclass kind of shifts? Yeah. Right. The, not, not only the underclass, the inhumane. So you have to you have to kind of really think about the fact that that in the beginning of this this experiment, white people moved here and they weren't white. Mm. They they were Irish or they were Finnish mm-hmm. or they were German or whatever the hell they were, but you know what they didn't get? They didn't get to be white yet. They hadn't earned that, right? 
And so the idea, I mean, it's just, and so here we, matter of fact, I grew up in Milwaukee, right? So you know what it really, like as far as the Polish, the jokes about Poe, I just, that always, I didn't get that for a long time when I was a kid, right? But people love telling those jokes, right? <laughs> uh-huh. But as I got older, I kind of, I, I got, you know, so, so they were the low white people. But the systemic aspect of it, what's baked into it is the implied or implicit, um, like, uh, idea that that at some point you aspire to or you inherit this mantle of being white, right? Like that's, it, you, it's you, like, when do you get accepted as right, being right. a member of of the white class? That's right. So yeah. so you have to exactly say, so when do you get to be white? Not even, not, it's not even like you don't even, and, and the people that inherited are the, are the second, but the first generation of people, they knew they weren't white. They knew they were Finnish or Norwegian or German. And you know what, I and mean, still, the Swedes don't like the Norwegians and Norwegians don't like the Swedes. They gang up and don't like the Finns and, and thank God black people came along because now the Finns got to get in the club. Right, it I just begets the cycle of like, exactly when, right. when do we get to look down on somebody? That's right. And then socially, what we did in this country is we created economic and social benefits for whiteness. Like we, and that's, I don't even talk, I don't say white privilege. I talk about the social benefits of whiteness. And what we can talk about, if we look back long enough, we will see that there's been economic and social benefits of whiteness to the point that people drop the ski off their name, drop the sun off their name. They, right, because you want to be an Anders, not an Anders son, mm-hmm. right? You, right? You want to be a, a, you know, a Chekin instead of a Chekinsky, right? I mean, however you do that, those, all those things you do and to walk away from culture, and this and your name and you know your look and then you can become white right. and then the benefits of that become where you can live you know and then government wise we there's always been benefits to becoming white there's always been benefits social and economic benefits of whiteness are real and they've been being compiled for such a long time that nobody you know who the second generation doesn't know the truth of that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so here we are in Minneapolis in this moment right now where it does feel like this is, it's a boiling over moment, right? Like it's all coming to the surface. And part of that, back to this idea of hope or optimism, like when it's all out there, now we have a chance to reckon with it, to grapple with it, and hopefully, you know, craft a a healthier future forward. But, you know, how are you like, it's crazy out there right now. There's there's Humvees everywhere, the curfews, you know, the the Dante protests going up in Brooklyn Center. Like, how are you feeling right now? Like what's going on inside your head? How are you processing everything? Yeah, I you know, I think the the one thing I, I'm actively, proactively um trying to do, you know, my own maintenance around self-care. That's one. Mm-hmm. Um I think the other thing is that being having a strategy for you have to take action. Like I think that helps. I don't. I mean, for me, part of my work is I'm actively taking action all the time. You know, around it right now. So the ability, you know, like even with the YMCA, you asked about one of the things we're doing with the YMCA is saying we're going to make our camp properties available for people to retreat, like Mm -hmm. just for free. We're going to create opportunities for people to get outside and and get for free. But one thing that happened in the pandemic is that it forced people to think, maybe I should go for a walk. Like I think that, you know, it's been right. like, you know, so so the idea of how do we position people getting outside? How are we creating spaces for people to do that? How are we creating conversations for people, uh, giving people, forcing people to talk about it? Because I think that one of the things that people thought is the best strategy for me is if I just don't feel, 
mm-hmm. right? If I don't feel, if I become numb, then I can I can get through this. And as a coping mechanism, yeah. It's just a coping mechanism. It doesn't, you don't actually not feel, right? You know, you, you still do just that. Just repressing it, yeah. That's exactly right. So, so that's what I really have been trying to do is create outlets for really how I'm feeling. Um, connecting to people and creating opportunities for them to do that, to go, really, how am I feeling? Like, how am I actually feeling, you know? And being conscious about the visual kind of digestion of it. Like, I've been very conscious not to watch the news first thing in the morning, Mm -hmm. not to do this, not to do that, you know, try to figure out how to get away from that dull noise and that distraction, you know, all day. Right, Um, and how are your kids dealing with it? You know, my 10 year old actually, the thing for her is actually what you described, the physical presence of seeing the National Guard on a street that is normally really, like that is kind of, you know, messes her up a little bit, right? Because that's, you know, that doesn't make sense or helicopters or like all those things are disturbing. So really, you know, for her, it's been been really working through that, like mm-hmm. and just talking actively uh, and reframing, you know, why they're here, what can we do? Um, and and creating rituals for her to go to bed, you know, really mm-hmm. really anchoring ourselves in rituals of, of eating and activity and though and, and those kind of things for her to be calm. Uh, my son is 16, and um, for him, and you know, when you talk about the young people, uh, as a 16 year old, one of the things, and actually one of the things you said, but one of the things that gives me hope is that these young people. Um, their reality, first of all, is significantly more integrated than ours uh-huh. ever was. Yeah. Um, you know, they also have had social justice baked into their, you know, reality. Right. Like they have always known social justice, even if it's just, you know, non-binary gender reality. Like they are open, mm-hmm. right? So he has uh, white friends that they are aligning together and going to protests, mm. right? That those young people are understanding the language of social justice and around white evolution around, you know what I mean? Like the, mm-hmm. the evolution mm-hmm. of young white advocates. If you talk to them, they like, they know all the language of being an ally. They understand privilege. They, they talk about stepping back. I mean, it's a very interesting thing. You watch them moving together. Um, it's, 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 it actually is, is pretty unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and playing a, a support role in terms of your power and privilege you know, providing food, providing connect. I mean, like, like there's right. something that they're doing in terms of a dance right now um, that is actually pretty compelling. And I and I think you're right. Um, the the challenge is that they also um, they're not afraid, uh-huh. right? They're they're 16 and 22, so they don't mm-hmm. have any healthy fear either, yeah. right? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know that imperviousness, you know, Absolutely. with those hormones that you that you have at that age. That's exactly sure. right, and the adrenaline is worth yeah. it all, right? You know, there's a part of yeah. them that that is that can go south though, like you know, the the 16, you get angry and shit goes sideways. That's exactly right, and 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 you know, and that is the value of intergenerational conversation. Mm-hmm. Like so, even that's one of the things I think about, you know, in terms of why we have to stay connected to our young people. We may not be on the front line, but we have to stay connected to them. We have to offer advisory. We have to offer some of that, you know, those opportunities to kind of bring them down a little bit, create those, you know, those, you know, bumpers. You know, we want them. You know, we want mm-hmm. them to, to go out there and throw them body their body at the pins. But let's put some bumpers up, so they, <laughs> yeah, you know, just a so few. They, right? So they hit some pins, yeah. right? You know, right. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I, like I said, I think that's the value of, of intergenerational work. You know, uh, and the role that we play. I, I really I think that the 
the 40 year olds and the 50 year olds have to find their role in this movement too. Mm -hmm. And part of it is an advisory role. And then the 65 year olds, 75 year olds, like they were there in 1965. Mm -hmm. Right, so there's also an element of opportunity for them to really engage from an experiential. I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying. Like that's a that what kind of missed opportunity is that if we don't connect 1965, you know, to 2021, right, right, in terms of the, you know, the moment because they look similar. Yeah, you know, it it actually looks. Yeah. There's, you know, what I mean. There's something yeah. and even in terms of the multi generational movement of it. You know, it was a multi. It was a multiracial movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tying to that legacy feels like. I mean, if you were somebody who participated in that in that time, and you're in your sixties or seventies now, um, there's so much to be learned from that experience. But also, I suspect some level of jadedness. Like we did this before, man, and you know, look, we're still doing it again. Right. Like, are we just going to keep doing this? Well, you know, and you know, so that, that's going to be a great interview to, to see that. But I think that the jadedness, if the, the ones that are jaded, um, sometimes feel also unacknowledged. Like I think there's an aspect of of mm. it that is also acknowledging that it began. Like this is not new. Like even if we just if we just acknowledge that this is not new, it puts us in a very different position, right? In terms of how we move forward, and and I think. You know that that's that's something that is very, um, you know, very American too, right? Is mm-hmm. that that you know that we we overvalue twenty, mm-hmm. you know, generally mm-hmm. we we overvalue the moment of the twenty year old in general, and 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 that is something. Yeah, we've lost the reverence for the wisdom of the elders. That's exactly for sure. right. That's right, and yeah. and I think this this could be an opportunity for us to, in some regard, do that again to to make that connection because I do think that they. Um, have learned something. And and more importantly, you know where I think we really get value from them probably is the post-movement movement that didn't happen. Because I think that they the thing that they would say is they, they became complacent. They thought that those initial things around policy actually were a solution and they were just mm-hmm. the beginning, you know, that they, or, or they got old and bought a Volvo. I, you know, I don't know what right. they're gonna say, but, <laughs> but you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know, that, yeah, yeah. that at some point, um, you know, even as we think about this, what do we do? The, the challenge for us is is not to stop, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that we, you know, you get a verdict, okay, now, whew, okay, now, right. we can, you know, it's, we're good, you know, probably Or not. we get a verdict that goes the other way. And we were talking about that before the podcast, right? Like right. everybody's thinking about what's gonna happen next week or over the next several days, if and when the jury comes back. How That's are right. you preparing for that? What does that look like? And there's a stress associated with that, right? Like there's a there's a a trauma to that that you're carrying around on some low level at all times. That's right. And that's when we keep thinking about it, especially preparing for uh, a non-guilty verdict, right? Like you know, just and, and you know that that there's like, and I've heard two different things. One mm-hmm. is the people who are saying, you know, I, I actually don't have hope for it. That's a bad place to be. Mm-hmm. And then there are the people that go, you know, um, well, I, you know, it's, there, it's not going to happen. But we, we, you know, we're, we're ready to protest. Or how do we protect against the protest? Or, you know, how do we, like I said, how do we protect against the fact that people can respond and be upset against a lesser charge? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, what what I feel like I'm trying to do in my circles is say to people, you know, let's separate from the trial that's going on. 
Let's really think aspirationally for what is it we want to create in terms of the world we're going to live in. Like really, what are the characteristics of this, of the outcome of this movement, of this, you know, this awakening mm-hmm. that we have had as a community around what the challenge is, right? What is it we really want to look like and what are the things we need to do that? So, because that is independent of the trial, right? Right, and, and irrespective of the outcome or whatever the verdict is, there's always an opportunity, right? So if it doesn't go the way that you would like it to go, where is the opportunity in that to forge the change right. you wanna see? Well, and, and you know, honestly, if you and I visualize a practical experience of what it looks like for there to be equity, for, for social justice to be realized, for us to, you know, if, if we think about that independent of the trial, really we're creating what the opportunity is. And if we know what that is and you and I work to define, well, what is the work we have to do to do that? Mm-hmm. That's independent of the trial. Right, it's being proactive rather than just responding or reacting that's to exactly external right. circumstances you don't have any control over. That, that's, and that's yeah. the key part. We actually don't have control over what's gonna happen there. But what we can do is visualize what that future looks like, put our, start defining what the work is for that, and let's move towards that. Because the truth is that is actually more empowering for us, right? Um, it actually puts our energy in a, in a good place. It gives us a hopeful vision for the future. I mean, and, and now you and I can immediately talk about how we ally. Mm-hmm. right? We can, we can describe what that looks like. We can well, what resources are you bringing to bear? You know mm-hmm. You're bringing media. You know, mm-hmm. you're bringing this reach. What am I bringing to bear? I'm actually, I'm gonna say, no, I'm bringing bikes and people. We're gonna do, whatever we're gonna do that, that does this, we can, we can start to plan for that now. We don't have, the trial right. doesn't have to dictate that. Right. You know? Meanwhile, you are getting bikes to people, right? Didn't you, you got like <laughs> 300 bikes to essential workers and stuff like that. Like you were, you were handing out bikes like well, candy bars for a while. <laughs> kind of, well, you know, you know, it was last year when COVID-19 shut everything down, um, it was just an accidental thing that perked up on our radar, which mm-hmm. was, in a, st- a matter of fact, the first place we noticed it was New York, which is really interesting, right? That the essential workers in New York realized that the, let me say the medical community realized the worst place you could be if you wanna actually stay healthy is public transportation, Yeah. right? So the people who had the ability said, okay, I can bike. And, they, and you guys got city bike in New York. Mm-hmm. So people started using those, there wasn't enough of them. They couldn't keep them clean. They took them off the streets. So then people started buying bikes. Bike shops were out of bikes in, in, in the March. And their supply chain's all messed up. So all you can't even up. get new bikes. They're all sold out. That's right. They couldn't get such new bikes. a mad rush on bikes. And we knew, so here in the Twin Cities, quality bicycle parts is based here. Most people don't know that. They're probably uh-huh. the largest distributor of bike parts in the world. And they're based like 15 minutes from here. So we have relationships there. And they were already telling us they were out of tubes, like crazy mm-hmm. weird stuff. So then we said, okay, well, how do we support essential workers who aren't the high earners who weren't the early adapters and get bikes to them. So, so that was really the goal was that we, we worked with another local organization here uh, called Free Bikes for Kids uh, and actually Alina um, Medical, Alina Healthcare. Uh, we got 300 bikes and then we just reached out. And, and again, the goal was really the frontline workers you know, mm-hmm. in our essential you know, worker community and we made bikes available for free. Mm. And we made bikes and helmets and locks available to them for free. And all they had to do is say that they, you know, that they needed one and that they would ride to work. And and it was and that was really the initiative. And and then once we did that, we found out they needed bikes for their families. Right. So then right. we then we organized another set of bikes and 
And then we gave those to the family members of, of those essential workers. And uh, and this is back in March and April. So as you know, Minnesota summer hadn't even broken yet, right? And then um, and then in in May, it became helping people actually have success with riding new bikes. Uh-huh. So people got new bikes, people were trying to use them. And so then we really focused our energy on and helping people have a successful experience. Yeah, it's such a powerful lever because once you have that bike, it represents so many things, fitness, of course, but also freedom, you know, the ability right. to roam. And then, you know, I know this is a big part of, of your advocacy, but once you're out on a bike and you're not in, a, in an Uber or a taxi or a train or whatever, you have a tactile relationship with the neighborhoods that you're, that you're kind of navigating through. And it really changes the frame with which you interact with those neighborhoods and the people right. that live there. That you, you, you hit the nail on the head is that in, in truth, it's not even about the bike, right? It is literally about reframing the relationship you have to the place you live, right? right. I mean, that is, and, and, and really for, and especially in challenged communities, you know, um, there's a disconnect you make to the geography you live in some ways, mm-hmm. right? You know, you just, you teleport in and teleport out, right? And you live in your house, Right, instead yeah. of living in your yeah, community, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and there are lots of reasons for that. And, and, but that's exactly right. It reframes the relationship to the place you live. Um, I, you know, and, and in, a, in a really, in a, in a big picture way, you know, isn't the, the history of racism, the history of the way that we, of xenophobia, you know, and the history of, you know, uh, gender bias is actually all about limiting mobility. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, you know, or controlling the body. Like if you really think about it in, the, in those gross terms, controlling the body, right? Limiting mobility has really been always the point. So, so the bike itself actually represents this initial breakthrough in terms of creating mobility. Like mm-hmm. it's about mobility, moving through your neighborhood, moving around the city with freedom, right? And as you... Mm-hmm. I mean, like as you want to in a self-propelled manner, right? And so the symbolism of that is is really big. Right, yeah, it's transgressive in that regard. When you when you juxtapose that or contextualize it against what happened in, in Chicago and what was it, 1919? Yeah. Yeah, when the, when, you know, the, the black person walked down the beach and crossed that imaginary line into the white beach and it caused all those riots. That's like right. this is the evolution of that in a way to, to you know, deconstruct those those boundaries yeah. and, that are and, not like you know they're they're invisible boundaries. That's right. And that's and that really is insightful. I think is and it's in, you're one of the few people who actually know that. Like I think that's even in terms of us mm-hmm. uh, f- putting this in the context of history, which well, is the generational piece of it, right? Um, is that 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 1919 event? Uh, and one of the things I point to that a lot is because I'm always saying to people that you have to realize that this issue of outdoors and equity is really important because one of the first great riots around race in this country started over an imaginary line on a beach in Lake Michigan, mm-hmm. right? Um, around this access to public space, who has a right to be where? Um, and it could cost you your life. That was that, and, and, and that was the first one, but there's been multiple versions of that same thing. And more recently, um, when you look at the, uh, the last desegregated spaces in America were public green spaces, mm-hmm. were public pools. And as a matter of fact, white America in St. Louis or Milwaukee, Kansas City, Detroit, rather than let black people in public pools in those spaces, 
They'd rather, they shut them down. They shut them down. They shut them down. I mean, all you have to do is study the history of public pools in America. And it's literally a history of race relations. That's incredible. There's a woman called Bonnie Soy who wrote a book called Why We Swim. She was on the podcast and a big part of that book is about that. And it's super fascinating. You know, I grew up in the the Washington DC metropolitan area. I was originally from Michigan. And uh, one of the things I realized when we moved to Washington is there aren't that many pools. There used to be, you know, every, we're in, in the Midwest, there's pools at all the high schools for the most part, right? And suddenly there aren't, why not? Well, it all goes back to that very thing that you're speaking about. Yeah, no, I, I, I think, and, and that's again, a really just the kind of the point of, you know, why, public green space, why outdoors represents something very significant mm-hmm. relative to our fight around racism. Like that, that's exactly right. And I think that again, we don't, you know, even now, you know, the, we, we can actually predict all significant disparities by zip code. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter disparities in healthcare, disparities in education, disparities in income, education, educational attainment. You can predict every one of those by zip code in America right now. And, and that is grounded in the work that was done for segregation beginning in the early 1900s as well. You know, the mm-hmm. initial things around redlining all flowed from the FHA, you know, mortgages. So from federally backed mortgages, that was the beginning of it, right? Created those delineations. And, and this city is no different than that. It was yeah. all around space and land. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you, I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. 
It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Yeah, this idea that, uh, that black bodies in public natural spaces have always been managed and controlled um, strikes people um, in a counterintuitive way because when you think of outdoor spaces or public parks, the kind of knee jerk reaction, at least, you know, me being a white dude is they're open spaces, like they're open to everybody. What are you talking about? So it requires a more kind of nuanced, historically grounded, right. you know, education to understand why they're not as open as one might uh, suspect. So talk a little bit about, you know, what that means. Well, the, you know, the, I, I think the, you know, the first thing, you know, that you describe right away is this, this, that they are, they are public, but they are controlled. Um, that we've, we've done a lot of things. And, and there's two pieces to me. And one of the pieces I think that we often miss is that, you know, the, the movement of, of black people from the South to the North all happened in one window of time, right? So the great migration happens, you know, really, but between 1950 and 1970, mm-hmm. let's call right? And when all those people moved here, they were outdoors people. That's one thing I said. They, they, they was where black people connected to the land. They farmed fundamentally. They fished. They hunted. You know, there was a, there was a connection to the land. There's a long legacy of that, right? Um, and even in Washington, D.C. area, as soon as you're not in D.C., you're in the country. You're right. in Virginia. You're in West Virginia. You're in, you know, this, so they were people connected to the land. Beginning in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, you start to see this collection of people in cities, Right, and the first thing they did was control where black bodies could go. So they actually created areas that were, where you could live in places you couldn't live, mm-hmm. right? And then those parks, right? We wound up patrolling, controlling, right? They they weren't safe in that regard. And the other thing that simultaneously happens is the the beginning of creating the identity of blackness as urban. Right. right. The, the idea that urban and black is synonymous That's is, a, exactly is, is right. a new thing. It's a new thing. Yeah. I mean, we only, but it's only new if you think 40 years is new. See, so we're old enough to go, that's right. new. But you know what I mean? Like that kind of idea, new would be, you know, that's what I say. One of the, one of the, the negative things about the internet is history is what happened last week. You know, and that's, that's how we, anything older right. than that is prehistory. And um, so, so in, but you're absolutely right. The last 40, 50 years has been the creation where we, when you say urban, you could mean black. And as a matter of fact, usually when people say urban, they mean black, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is, that's a new creation. 
And that grounding of identity has really been based on the fact that policing, geography, banking, housing has all been about controlling black bodies into very specific geography, right? And they're dense, they're not green. You know, it hasn't been a commitment to using natural space as a necessary need for well-being, mm-hmm. which is how we talk about it right now, right? You know, um, and, and and so that's really significant. And simultaneously, you know, we get the, the the growth of the of the environmental movement. You know, as we see at the Sierra Clubs, and the, you know, those organizations all pop up out of the '60s. And I think that though that was really white America's response to Black Power. Like you, you know, the, mm. you know that you look oh, that's at. That's interesting. You know what I, I mean? You think that. about when when does when does the women's movement start? The black movement start? The Chicano American movement, Latinx, whatever we call it at that time. When does the when does the gay movement start? That all those movements start when sixty five mm-hmm. to seventy five, right? When does this movement emerge as we know it? Same window Same of time. time. Same window of time. And so it's it's a it's just an interesting way that that happens. And then as this simultaneously happens, we get the growth of like like outdoors is the lone adventure advent, you know, adventurer. You know, you need a lot of gear and it's recreation and, and that's what we've grown in the last you know, fifty years too, right? And I and that's what going. And I'm I'm that guy, right? right? You know, I get that was you know he joked about yeah, that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know the rooftop rack, bike uh-huh. ring on the front. You know this. And so all of a sudden. You know, this way that we've cultivated it now is very different than, than what it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and because these are fundamentally socially oriented events and really outdoors is fundamentally a social pursuit, we have to acknowledge America is socially segregated, mm-hmm. that fundamentally America is socially segregated. So one of the things that black people, brown people do when they're not at work is they organize with other black and brown people. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, like a recuperative strategy. Because I got to be in white America all day. Like that's mm-hmm. what people like, you know. So I, so the way that I balance that is when I have my social options, they're fundamentally, you know, oriented towards whatever whoever your people are. Right. And so so outdoors, as we see it as recreation, social, this. So what is it black people do when they when they, they don't hang out with white people? Right. Place, right. Or they don't do that. I mean, the the trope of like black people don't camp, black people don't swim, they don't ride mountain bikes or go surfing. Yeah. Um, and then the kind of legacy of that notion gets baked into the next generation of black people who right. then believe that that is the case and don't understand that there are external forces that have created that reality right. artificially. And young people especially, because you know that's one thing I think working with young people has been, is that young people are always looking for authenticity, right? You know what I'm saying? Like they mm-hmm. wanna do what's, they're keeping it real, like that is real for them. They wanna keep it real. They wanna align with their identity, what they, and so if you look at young black kids, you know, with, uh, you know, outside, you know, with, they, they go, I don't do that. You know, that's what they do. I'm, mm. I'm aligning with what blackness is, mm-hmm. right? I'm aligning with those things that validate that identity that I have for myself, right? Um, and so that is, that's part of it. And their parents are the first generation of people disconnected from outdoors, mm-hmm. right? So, th- so they don't do it either. And, and if your parent isn't taking you, that's the, but, but as far as even the black people don't camp thing, what's interesting is simultaneously, and there's, and there's documentation for that here, um, is black people did camp. Like mm-hmm. if you look at the 60s, 70s, even the 80s, there, there were, and there's hardly any black people here. That's one thing, Minneapolis is not uh-huh. like, you know, it's definitely in DC. You know? so <laughs> yeah. It might not even be Denver, I don't know. <laughs> but um, but I, I'm just saying that I think 
that um, there are there is documentation of lakefront properties that were that were actually populated by all black families mm. from the Twin Cities, mm. right? Lake Adney is what it's called. That literally, in, and it's in the Minnesota, so, and I know these families of those families who, who summered at Lake Adney, mm. right? Right. And they wow. did that. I mean, it's so-, so It's kind I, of a, it, it's similar to uh, the history of Manhattan Beach and what's going on there in Los Angeles right now with the reparations. That's exactly, that's an yeah. amazing story, yeah. right? You know, but even even in um, uh, Martha's Vineyards, mm-hmm. you know, there's a legacy. Right. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Right. I mean, it's still a black haven if you got the cash. If you got the cash. <laughs> yeah, but, but, yeah. but the idea of a black uh-huh. haven at Martha's Vineyard right. in 1940, 1950, like people don't know. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That that's what I'm saying. Yeah, e- yeah, even yeah. in the Poconos, even they, they now know because you know Obama goes there or that's whatever. Right. But that's right. But they think it's because of money. Right. right. They don't know that there's actually a long legacy. Mm of that happening. And, and, you know, I mean, that's like, and, and there were actually uh, state parks for black people in Georgia. Wow. Until desegregation. Yeah, I, I mean, it, like, so that's what I'm segregated saying. Segregated black park. Segregated black, right. a segregated state park outside Atlanta, <laughs> near Stone Mountain. Yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? So, so, mm-hmm. so this is like, so that kind of, is, is that's what I mean. It was black people, no, black people did do that. Matter of fact, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a legacy of black people being deeply engaged in those activities, you know, up until this kind of new urban focus in terms of what it means. And, and you know, the part about that too, that I would say that's, that, is, that is interesting is that there, there's always been parallel universes for black America. Like that's, that's the way I remember it too, as you think about, you know, and, and professionally, if you think there's the Journalist Association, there's the Black Journalist Association. There's the American right. Bar Association, the National Bar Association. So there's this way where black life in some regard emulated white life, only black. Right? Yeah, well, the marginalization forces that that impulse to create their own communities. That's, that's exactly yeah. right. And so we had these parallel universes of all these different things going on all the time, it's always mm. been that way. So there's always been a black outdoor movement. Even now, there's a black RVers. Like, like, that, like that's how, we, <laughs> yeah. like, no, right now, go uh-huh. Google it, black <laughs> RVers. It uh-huh. is, it's a real thing of black people that yeah. RV that connect to each other and get out. So. Well, there's also all these, these cool kind of, um, you know, black communities about the outdoors, like nonprofits or community-based organizations that are cropping up like Outdoor Afro that's and right. Diversify Outdoors and, Melanin base camp, like, yep. you know. So that's happening in no small part, I would imagine by the work that you're doing to try to create advocacy. But so much of it, it would seem, you know, social media kind of has its pluses and minuses, but um, the way I see it, and I'm interested in what you think about this, is that, you know, hip hop culture predominates as, the, you know, the largest cultural force in America or perhaps across the world. And the influence of that on young people is beyond profound, right? But at the same time, you do have amazing black voices that are in the outdoor space who are out there killing it and creating a different and new type of role model for the young black person to model themselves after. Well, let me- And And I'm not casting aspersions on hip hop. I'm just saying they're different things. I think that, you know, the thing about hip hop, you know, two, two things about hip hop, hip hop, ultimately became this actual very shared experience for our black youth and white youth. Like, like that's one of the things I think that is a, is a shared kind of interesting experience for them um, because aesthetically, 
you know, I feel like compared to when I was a kid, I feel like you can, you, you can no longer turn radio stations and go, who's listening, mm-hmm. right? Because you could do that for a very long time. You knew the audience always, but you can't do that as easily. You can't, you could not see a young person's clothes and go, are they black or white? So mm-hmm. the style is very similar, right? You know, there, there's, a, there's a much more shared social reality that yeah. our young people have. And hip hop is, is part of that, right? Hip hop is- a huge part of that. It, that's what I'm saying, yeah. right? So, so hip hop, you know, they're, they're, the impact is, in that regard is really interesting. The other thing that hip hop did was teach people the idea that I can vertically integrate my own money, right? I mean, as much as I can be an artist, I can be the producer, mm. I can be the label. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna distribute this I shit myself, right? I own mean, the vertical integration. Right. right. Of I mean, you know, everything that I do. Everything, yeah. right? So the young people now go, I can be a corporation tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's a piece of that that is really interestingly different. I think if you talk to Black America and even even adults that are over 45, you know, they have a much more traditional trajectory in terms of how they would get to success. Right, go to college, think, what are the pathways? Mm-hmm. Go to college, get the right degree, get in corporate America. You do, do this ascension, right? A very- Which is all about fitting in or like doing right. as you're told or checking boxes, yeah. Assimilation was a fundamental strategy until hip hop, right? They like they, mm-hmm. and, the, and so not only did hip hop go against that, then the internet, you know, came along and allowed them to actually have the tool to do it themselves. And, and, it's, and it just really, um, changed the way that they they saw the world and kind of their identity. So I think hip hop owes that. I think the outdoor movement, you know, fueled by young people, that the the thing that they decided to do, and I and I do know the young people, and and I, I know um, Rue Map at Outdoor Afro. I mean, I know mm-hmm. the people at Diversify Outdoors. I mean, these are people I know. But I'm going to say that I think they were more innovative in some regards than I was, right? Because I do think they're the new guard. And I think that they focused their energies on changing the narrative. Like they were literally like, yes, we do. Like that's, that, that should be mm-hmm. the website. Yes, black people do. Because that was kind of, their, you know, we, we do climb. You know, oh no, we, we do do this, we do do that. And they then challenged the system against the fact that they had to assimilate, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think I've evolved because when I first started doing this movement, I just was trying to get black folks on bikes, right? Mm-hmm. It was just, but you know what? They were the black people that looked like the white people in spandex. Like that was, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, right, and, and, and right, I mean, that was, uh-huh. and so, but what evolved for me over time was that that wasn't really the solution. And so I've changed my strategies and so I'm much more aligned with them. And then the, the organization that you didn't mention that you probably, is there, the idea of the global majority, Mm. That organization is really interesting because they're they're making the claim that if there's solidarity past color and we look at the idea of not white and the global majority, then actually we are a majority. And if we're a global majority, probably we maybe a majority outside, right? Just in terms of if we, so I think there. So then that comes along and really changes things. And I wow. think that's that's really even for me in terms of. The, the idea of, of what we're doing. And, and so that's interesting to say that you were naming those names. So we used to be Major Taylor Bicycle Club in Minnesota. Right. We've done all these different, so the current movement that we're using here in the Twin Cities and we're growing is called Melanin in Motion. Mm. And what's been deep is the response from the community of people who said, I'm down with that. Like, like I think there was, like, and you know how, and, and if you're an outdoors person, you know how you talk to your friends and tell and they and, the, and you say, you should go biking with me and they go, 
okay, yeah, I'll go biking. But in their mind, what they're really saying, I am not going biking with that dude. He's going to hurt me. I am not right. I am not going to get dropped. I'm not going to have the yeah. wrong bike. I'm not going to have the wrong clothes. Yeah, well, cycling's full of all that nonsense. It is, yeah. and but, but that's what they're saying. Well, the same thing with outdoors. Mm-hmm. And so once we took it out of like, it's no, all we're doing is moving. We are, we are, we are a melanated community getting mm-hmm. together. We're gonna move somehow. It might be snowboarding. It might be cross country skiing. It might be biking. It might be hiking. It might be snowshoeing and there's no judgment. So this is, a, so just by shifting that, all of a sudden people say like, you know, I'm, I'll try that. Right. You know, I, it, was, it, was really, it was really amazing. Or even in terms of the bike work, you know, like I said, I've been doing bike work for a long time, about four years ago, I decided I wasn't gonna work with any bike organizations. So we were gonna gonna do community-based bike rides, give away bikes, but we weren't gonna partner with any bike organizations. Because if you partner with bike organizations, you know what it becomes about? About the bike. The bike, yeah. It comes about the bike, mm. right? And then they, and then they, you know, then they helmet shame you, and then you get the unintentional bike shaming. We started partnering with arts organizations, and it changed everything. Mm. I mean, so so that was like, and, I, and it was just, you know, arts organizations are about the experience. So yeah. right. So so now we're managing people's emotional experience, and that's what I. That was like the light bulb. I said, oh. We're using a bike, but what we're really doing is creating new positive emotional connections for people mm-hmm. to, to disrupt what they already know. Right. Because that's what they're doing, right? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the more I think about it, the biggest barrier is the welcome mat. You know what I mean? Because especially in the context of cycling, because there's so much gear and and you know, anybody who goes into a bike shop, like a pro bike shop, you feel insecure because you don't know what the right question to ask is. That's and you right. see all this fancy stuff and That's everybody's right. speaking a language you don't quite understand. Um, but making people feel comfortable that this is accessible to them. That's right. All that other stuff comes later, but it's getting them in the door. Dude, you hit the nail on the head. And I, and I really, the way you characterize it, when you talked about the feeling of insecurity, what happens? I if, say that as like a you know like a well-to-do white dude, uh, but, you know, but, uh, who, but, who has a lot of miles, yeah, you know, under my belt. And when right. I go to a bike shop, still, I, st- I still kind of feel that way. But 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 you saying that out loud changes everything. You see what I'm saying? In terms of that, when you say that, what I have to actually do is kind of like what I was saying earlier. How do we see the person? How do we see the community? I, do I see that person as 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 they just don't have knowledge, mm-hmm. or do I go? You know what? That person is coming and they're questioning themselves. They're feeling a little insecure. They don't have the confidence here that they have in their normal life. So, so let, me, let me manage that. And if you think that's what's going on, you come up with different strategies, right? Mm-hmm. right? You, if you think they're unknowledgeable, what do you do? You spew knowledge, mm-hmm. information, statistics. Like that's, but if you, if you go, no, they're, they're actually having this, this emotional insecurity, this lack of confidence. They want to, you know what I'm saying? Then you go, well, what do I have to do to handle that? And that's a whole different set of strategies, right. a whole different set of strategies. And then you can talk about information. If you handle that, that part of it, that makes all the difference. And that, that's what I'm saying is like, that was, that, was what, that was the epiphany about working in schools and working with right. families, like, that the, how I view what the challenge is, is totally shifted. So now I can actually address the challenge. I can really put my energy towards that emotional mm. experience that we're having. And, and I think you and I would agree that a person, the emotional experience they have is more real than what's real. Mm. Yeah, 100%. 100%. 100%.
There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries, all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. How did you get into all this? You know, I literally, I, I came here to go to college. Uh, my 18-year-old ego made me want to play football at the University of Minnesota instead of the <laughs> uh, Ripon uh-huh. College or whatever. You know, you know, I had a lot of offers to small schools and very few um, to big schools. But mm-hmm. like I said, my 18-year-old ego was like, no, dude, big ten. big 10. And so I came to the University of Minnesota to play football. And um, I, you know, I learned something really quickly in, in college. Everybody's big, everybody's fast, right? In high, in high school, speed kills, yeah. right? Uh-huh. And in college, skill, speed can still get killed, mm-hmm. right? It was like everybody was big and fast. And I was majoring in engineering and it, it was killing me. And I was on the, I was on the scout team. You know what I mean? You know, where you're running other people's right. plays. But you got a scholarship so you, you know, could come here. So I could come yeah. here and I, um, but I, but I quit, but I got an engineering scholarship, which is mm-hmm. even weirder, right? So I got an academic scholarship. So I stayed and, but I quit playing football. And as soon as I quit playing football, I, I got fat. Uh-huh. And um, so I start, so I joined a gym off campus that was downtown and parking was crazy. So I started biking to the gym. Mm. And one day I didn't stop. That's really, and I, I just like started enjoying. And so mm-hmm. I started biking, mm-hmm. and that competitive part of me made me do. You know, I wanted a different bike and different gear. And then I did a race, and uh, I met a friend, Louis Moore, who was older than me, who became a partner in crime for, you know, big adventures. You know, single day, two twenty five mile races. We did wow. a five day challenge from Denver. We rode from Denver to Minneapolis mm. in five days. We. You know, our goal at that point was race across America or something. Right. Um, but as we started doing it, I just realized there weren't any black people out there. Yeah, either, yeah, right? yeah. And so um, we helped 
a group of black women prepare for the AIDS ride from Minneapolis, Chicago. And I, I just was like, this is, that was more exciting than biking. Mm. And so that I, I we, we started the Major Taylor Bicycling Club mm-hmm. of Minnesota. Yeah, so explain who Major Taylor was. So yeah, Major Taylor was the uh, first uh, American born black champion in any sport in 1889 in cycling. And uh, he's- So crazy. You know, yeah, and just, uh, he was an amazing athlete. Um, I mean, just really his story is, an, is, he was an amazing athlete at a time when bicycling was the greatest sport in the world. Um, and at a time when racism was, was at its worst, it was just mm-hmm. post Jim Crow. Um, and he, and one of the elements of his story that I, I really think is, is beneficial is that he, he partnered with a, with, a, with a man from Indiana named Bertie Munger. Bertie Munger was an older white um, uh, big wheel racer. Uh-huh. who partnered with Major Taylor in Indianapolis and ultimately moved to Worcester, Massachusetts to open a bike business. But I, I think many people talk about Major Taylor's challenges and his triumphs, and he was an amazing athlete, and there's lots there. I think the fact that they were able to ally across race in 1889, mm. and he, was, he, was, he, he did his first race, his first professional race under 16. Wow. His first real- What was racing? What were they racing back then? They, so they were racing road bikes. And, and really when you, you know, the, the, the real exciting part of what they did was they were doing velodrome racing. Mm-hmm. So in Madison Square Garden, Madison Square Garden was built, the version in, in 1889 um, that was built was a velodrome. Get out. And they had 25,000 people watching bike races in New York in the velodrome. That is a history I've never heard. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it, it is un- Unbelievable to how big it was, um, and the 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 first his debut like race when he became a sensation was in New York at Madison Square Garden in 1887, and it was a velodrome. It was a six day, so they talk about the six day races. It was six days of nonstop racing. Nonstop, just going around. Six days, nine nine days. You could stop, but the goal was to. I mean, it's whoever just a, got the most whoever accumulated got, miles yep, over most six accumulated days. Miles in six days on a track. On a track, and he finished at in Madison Square Garden. In Madison Garden. Square Garden, he twenty finished at twenty three hundred miles. I mean, it's wow. It, it's just it's just it's an unbelievable accomplishment. But you have to remember, in the turn of the century, the bicycle was the pinnacle of technological achievement. Mm-hmm. Like we don't really think about that in, in a way. And and what you said earlier about it being a symbol of freedom, it actually was a symbol of freedom for women, for black people, for people. It was, you know, mm. it, was, it was really, the automobile was undependable and horses were slow. And, you know, so the bicycle represented something significantly different. And Major Taylor and Bertie Munger understood that. Mm. Like I, I really, I believe that. And I think um, that is why he, um, for me really, it was, and I discovered his book accidentally in the basement of a bike shop that I was working in. Mm. And, and uh, he was just a forgotten hero. He's completely forgotten. I mean, it's like a movie. Yeah, and, it's, and still we have not made yeah. a good Major Taylor movie. Yeah, right? I mean, I talked a little bit about him with, do you know who Justin Williams is? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. so Justin's been on the show and what he's doing in LA with Legion is, is like unbelievable. Right. Yeah, he's but, really but like Don't you think Justin this, Williams but, is, is what you talked about earlier in terms of the hip hop community? Oh yeah, right? He's, he's right at the cross section of those two worlds and he's able to bring that sensibility into That's right. not just his racing and being an elite cyclist, but into this idea of, 
of owning outdoor spaces. That's right. And I, I'm telling you, and I know Justin, actually, uh-huh. I, have a, I have a great picture of him with my son and my son raced bikes too. And yeah. that picture, and it was such an amazing picture because he was probably 13. And this was three years ago here. He was in town for a race. Uh, and I've talked with him a lot because I also know Rasan mm. Bahati really mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And just, but, but Justin is what you were describing. He is that young, uh, black American hip hop generation who said, I can really integrate myself. Like I, you know, he could be racing about, here. And, and in that in that transgressive way of not trying to assimilate, he's right. like, I'm starting my own team. That's I'm right. not going to Europe. I'm That's not right. doing That's that. Right. I like the fixie culture. I think we can do something here in the United States and get people excited about the kind of bike racing that I excel at, which That's is exactly criteriums. Right. I, I, that's what yeah. I'm saying. That he represents that sensibility and that fearlessness and his understanding of where the money flows, right. how I can do it, how do and I ownership. build the brand and the value of it, owning my own brand. Like that's really powerful. Mm-hmm. And bringing that hip hop sensibility into the garments, right? Like that's creating right. a line that is aspirational for a young kid who sees that. Cause that's it's, right. it's freaking dope and you can't buy it unless you're on the team. So that's right. he creates that, like it's that supreme model of like, you can't get it, man. There's that's no, right. you know, there's high demand and low supply. And I, and, and that's what I mean, I think it's brilliant. And I like, I'm, I'm working really hard to try to get him to come to Minneapolis this summer. So if you're uh-huh. listening, Justin, I'm gonna keep calling. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But, but no, but I really, I, I really, I uh, mean that, I think that is a, g- a great example. And I think even fixie culture is another one of those weird stories that you know that we don't really realize that the, the idea of fixie culture actually also has black roots. Mm-hmm. And it's, it has its black roots in the Caribbean community of New York. Because when the Caribbeans moved here to New York, the only bike they knew was fixies. So fixie mm-hmm. culture and European set, that's what's bike and racing for like, Europeans. you know, three spoke wheels on them. That's and like exactly making right. them all crazy colors and all that kind of stuff. And that, yeah. drove all fixie culture in the United States was really started by the Caribbeans in New York. Yeah, the 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 true history versus the the sort of conventional narrative. It's it's fascinating. Another example of that is um is had Salama Masakella on yep. the show and he sent me his uh, Afro Surf book. Do you have yep. this book? Yep. It's unbelievable. Yep. And this complete revisionist history of where surfing comes from and how in Deeply embedded it is in you know black cultures across the world. Yeah, tracing back to prior to that's you know right. what we initially believed began in Hawaii. Right, and that's what and see I that's what I meant by changing the narrative. Like that's like really a fundamental idea that the instincts of this of this current group is changing the narrative. So so you don't have imposter syndrome when you show up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. or you don't you don't question your own integrity, your own authenticity. Your like that because that matters to me. There's people. a legacy. Here. And and you own you're part of that legacy mm-hmm. you're you're good doing that and I think that's really and you know what's interesting I I know Hugh because my son was a snowboarder mm. and he's a competitive snowboarder he was ranked 12th in the country mm. you know last year and this year he got an invitation uh, to to travel with the U S Olympic team during COVID wow. and he turned it down what I can know and it and it really it was about culture. Right, he was in Park City last year. He was in he was in Vail last summer with the team and got a chance to be with them. Um, and it's just you know it was really interesting that he just said, "Nice, not me." 
Wow. Like that's not those are that's not really my mm, thing. That's right? a Justin Williams move. And, and I'm telling yeah. you, see, and, and it, I'm telling you at the time, I was like, dude, really? You're saying I didn't get it, but then I had to dig deeply and think about his decision. And at the same time, another young man, Brian Rice. I don't know if you've seen him. Brian mm-hmm. Rice, 16 year old from Detroit, who just is going to Worlds. He qualified for World Championships. Um, and and they were partners in crime. You can see mm-hmm. them on Instagram together. They trained last summer together. Um, it's happening. I mean, you know, and that's and that's what I mean. And so I was on a call with Salima and Brian and my uh, son and those wow. other people because Salima also sees the fact that he actually is a pioneer and also the narrative that all snowboarders don't compete. You can create mm-hmm. the culture, right? From that's maybe a more advantageous point for creating culture where he is, right? Right, because he was never competitive. That's what right. He, he's a, he's a he's an ambassador. That's exactly right. And he talks about his legacy of getting there through skateboarding, through surfing, right? And board culture, borders, the culture of snowboarders is really similar, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's just a really interesting culture of that, anyway. Yeah. And so I think. You know, and we've been steeped in it. So I think that's the other thing that I've I've really had the fortune to be on the inside of that community, see the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of how it works. But ultimately, um, snowboarding culture is you know is. And as a matter of fact, I, I I did an article where I believe snowboarding is the culture that can integrate winter sports. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, well, that's, if there's one sport that can, it's that. But the difference between snowboarding and surfing, yes, they're both board cultures, but surfing just by virtue of geography. That's you right. Know, you have to go to these exotic places where it's an indigenous, you know, part a way of life, right? So you're exposed to all these different That's right. types of people, whereas snowboarding is really kind of like a white thing. Well, and and it's and and so even there, you know, as the, it, it's a white thing because, because of, of the, geography. Because of geography, yeah. right. And yeah. actually and how can we predict disparities? Geography. Geography. Yeah. I mean, that's like part of you know, yeah, like yeah, now yeah. that's that's what's so deep. That's exactly right. And that's what I was saying, and you know, these guys. And so actually, you know, even that is an effort we're working on. We're like uh-huh. we're we're positing to um and merely in Burton Snowboard is actually a really cool partner because they're being thoughtful about this. Um, is we're saying what we need to do is create small snowboard hills in the community. Mm. And snowboarding is unique in that you don't need a lot of elevation to build a really cool snowboard park. So what we're trying to do, um, we start, we are experimenting here in Minneapolis and we wanna do more locations. Like skate parks sort of. Yeah, like a skate park, a skate park with snow, but it's only, I mean, it's 150 feet of elevation with a skate park on it where you teach, right? You help people have positive emotional connections right? You help them figure out gear and then you make it progressive. So the progressive experience starts five, 10 minutes from home, then 30 minutes to mm-hmm. an hour from home. Then you go 13 mm-hmm. hours to Colorado. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, then, then all of a sudden it all makes sense. So what we're trying to do is put people through experiences to build the value of what we're talking about before you try to do yeah. this big leap, right? Yeah, but this city is flat. You know, <laughs> we, we got valleys. <laughs> That's one thing I noticed. No, we got valleys. Right. That's just, but no, not, I, not in the city city. No, we, we in Is the there? city city. Yeah. yeah, that's so that's what I'm saying. If we, if we have a hundred, if we need 150, 200 feet of elevation, you know, and that's what the reason skateboarders coming out of Minnesota are really good is because they're doing hot laps on mm. a small amount of elevation. Mm. So they're not so doing getting a, more, way more runs. Way more yeah. runs. Yeah. They're getting way more runs in in the same amount of time. So you right. got, so all you need is 150 foot rope toe. Right, mm-hmm. and you put in obstacles. You can build jumps. 
You can work on everything and you can do it in an elevation where you get more runs in. And that's what I'm saying. So how do we, so we, you know, these, these, these flat, flatlander locations actually could be great entrees into snowboarding. Right, that's interesting. It's the same thing in Chicago, same thing yeah. in Detroit, same every, right? All these flatlander places have these small valleys where we could actually, and, and they're close to the city, uh-huh. right? Because all the old industry happened close to the rivers, which is in the center of the cities. So we've got, so we've got a really an interesting foundation for what could we do to make snowboarding, mm. right? Something is cheap and affordable, close to home. Cause right now we don't have, mm-hmm. now you don't need a hundred dollar lift ticket. You do a $10 yeah, lift ticket. Yeah, there's no chairlift involved. There's no chairlift involved. That's what I'm, right? So, so this is where again now, but back to my point. So now we're thinking, what was the challenge, right? Once we once we define a different challenge, we can kind of come up with different mm-hmm. solutions. Mm-hmm. And I think that we 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 spiral that up, and yeah. all the outdoor stuff is like right. That. You probably know Dan Butner, right? Yeah, yeah. So Dan's a friend, um, Minneapolis native. Oh, he'd be mad at you because he's a St. Paul. Oh, is he? It's St. Paul. Yeah. Oh yeah, dude. Don't. Sorry, Dan. That's all right. Um, he emailed me yesterday. <laughs> but one of the things he always talks about is how um, this region is exceptional in terms of creating an environment that's conducive to a healthy lifestyle. And where I'm going with this is rather than, rather than trying to convince people they need to go outside or give them a battery of reasons, you have to create an environment that kind of marshals people in that direction. So the idea of creating that kind of snowboarding experience that is centrally located, accessible, urban, not intimidating, has a good welcome mat, is part of that thinking, that philosophy, right? That's exactly right. But this area is well known for all of its biking, you know, lanes and everything that they've done to facilitate that. So how does that work? Like that's sort of the conventional wisdom, but how does that work in terms of accessibility for the, you know, underserved communities and the underprivileged and the black and people of color? Well, so and I and I really love the way you kind of package that up because what what I what I think is is that that what you're saying is absolutely right. The city and the way I characterize the city and the region make significant investments in public green space, active living, bike lanes. I mean, you travel, we we have a literally there's a belief that there's a park within mo- one mile of every home in the Twin Cities. Mm. And the goal, the commitment is there will be a bike lane within one mile of every front door in the Twin Cities. So that's a municipal commitment. Because we are a city making that commitment. We have an amazing park system, which is also funded by taxes. Our regional, and I'm actually a commissioner on our regional authority Mm -hmm. around parks. And so I'm pushing this. We therefore have a responsibility to do whatever it takes to make sure that these amenities are equitably participated in by all of our communities. So that's the foundation. We have a responsibility for that. Therefore, the programming that we do has to enlist the things we've been talking about. It has to solve the obstacle of a bike. It has to solve the obstacle of the skills needed to be successful at it. It has to solve the obstacle of the historical reality that we have created in our public spaces. This is mm-hmm. black people don't belong here, right? right? We have to, the last thing we have to solve is the culture that says whoever's moving the fastest with the most momentum and the most skill has the most right. I mean, I, that, that is the last part that, that really, because that's what happens, right? People make up their mind, they get out there and then they get screamed at by somebody 
going faster than them, right? Yeah. And it trickles down. It's the it's the roadie against the the, the, you know, the guy who's a, on a on a mm-hmm. you know on a city bike, and it's a city bike against a kid on a it's bike, a and it's and it's the pecking, and then it's that kid <laughs> against a walker and a woman with a stroller. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? It's like, and so that culture is what flows downhill. And so that's that, those, those are the things that, that as a municipality, as a region, as a city committed to those things, we have to handle that too. And, mm-hmm. and, and we can do that. And I, I tell you what, the cost of giving every kid in the Minneapolis public school system a bike in third grade, what would that take? What would that, that's not even- I mean, it's a blip on the radar of a exactly city budget. Right. That's exactly right. And if we did that, we, we, that, now that's equity. We're redistributing resources Right in a real way to serve the needs of people. Those are big ideas, and and you know that you know it's funny you talk about Dan Butner, and I'm a fan of his work. And one of the biggest reasons I'm a fan of his work is because what he really points out in Blue Zones and continues to point out in this work is that the fundamental of active living is baked into the cultural reality of a mm. people. Right. So when he talked about those Sardinian, you know, fishermen and their walk to the thing and then having wine and, you know, the the Okinawan housewives, you know, the Seventh-day Adventist, you know, community and that really what's the ultimate measure of health is actually connectedness. Mm -hmm. Like like that's I mean, the ultimate measure of health is actually connectedness. So if we make the goal of all of our active living activities, building community, we win. Mm. And what, and rather than fitness, rather yeah. than this. So, so that's, a, that's another shift in terms of my own growth is that that's the ultimate goal of everything I do in terms of outdoors. Right, because if you achieve that, if you create that level of deep connectivity and community, everything else flows from that. that yeah. There you go, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, I, and I'm just, that, that is again, it just sounds too simple, right? Right. Um, but, but ultimately that's a huge shift for us as outdoor advocates, is a huge shift for us as active living advocates, even, even people who are focused on food as medicine. And they, you know, they, that really, if you build community around whatever that thing is, if you make the result of that experience, building community, you win. Mm-hmm. And, and people, it'll, and then it will perpetuate. Mm-hmm. Right, it'll become mm-hmm. self-validating. Yeah, the the losing battle is trying to get people interested in something that feels like an obligation or a burden or that's right a situation in which they have to go out of their way or inconvenience themselves. That's to, right, to and I and, and that's what I, I yeah. really I mean, you know, that was like from I mean, there's lots of takeaways from Blue Zones, but I I think one of the biggest takeaways for me personally was you know because I, I talk about the Okinawan housewives all the time uh-huh. is the fact that sitting in a chair is killing us, right? And even that, you know, simple idea um, uh, versus sitting on the floor and getting up and sitting mm-hmm. down and getting up and sitting mm-hmm. down and getting mm-hmm. up. And that idea of how do you integrate movement into your life is mm-hmm. really a very, and rather than that's why it's melanin in motion and not melanin on bikes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. melanin on a run. You right. know what I mean? <laughs> like, right. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, we went out to ride bikes the other night. What's the ride share here? It's called like Nice, nice Bike. Ride. Nice Ride. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it wouldn't let us. It was like, we, we tried like four different credit cards, a whole bunch of us trying huh. to rent bikes. And I think it was because of what's going on here. Like oh, they I'm just sure locked it. it down and yeah. they don't want people riding bikes around. And, right and you know what else? They might be doing it for out of, out of town credit cards. Maybe. Cause that's- They don't I, want out of towners riding, yeah, taking but, nice rides. Well, because cause they're, you know, vandalism, yeah. people get whatever it is, mm. it might be more of that um, than anything. And, um, 
And that's interesting. I'm gonna check that now, but but even you know, even that is Lyft. You know that, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> right. I so know. what I will say is Lyft has really done an interesting job here of coming coming in and, and connecting to community advocates around promoting their programming. Mm. So they so I think they've actually done an interesting job of that. But Nice Ride um, is one of those efforts that really it, it was a problem when we first opened it and, and we actually created and worked with them and created an equity initiative to specifically focus on communities of color and, and, and low to moderate income communities with pricing, mm. with introduction, with what you, you know, the welcome mat. Mm-hmm. I mean, we created a, a series of, of rides and activities that were all about connectedness. And that and that really worked, and that ultimately turned into our slow roll movement. Yeah, you know yeah. that really that whole thing kind of slow came roll being like the group participatory rides that you guys organize. Yeah. yeah. Well, one thing about Nice Ride, you got to fix that user interface, man. It makes you click through like you know twenty pages of disclaimers right. and stuff like that. I'm like, that's a barrier. Yeah. No, I know? I think that that was. Uh, baked into the very first versions of it because of it was sponsored too. Mm. So like we had healthcare organizations as the key sponsors and we, so I, and the city. And it, so I think, you know, you're absolutely right about that. You yeah. Know? So. They look like nice bikes though. Yeah. And the, the, the new ones are electric. Of like city, you know, kind of yeah. rental bikes. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good system and they've always upgraded the fleet and they make sense here because our GI, our footprint is so small. Right. You know, and three miles in any quick. direction and you've covered yeah. major territory in Minneapolis. It's been interesting to see how various cities have responded to COVID. And, you know, I often look at Manhattan and you see those images of the streets closed and everybody's just walking and they're riding bikes. And I'm like, here's the one moment in a lifetime where you could like change everything and just say no more residential vehicles in Manhattan, you know, just just delivery trucks and maybe some, you know, ride shares or whatever, but let's close off a bunch of these thoroughfares and adopt a more European blue zones model because people seem to be enjoying That's it. Right. And the cafes are popping up on the street with the outdoor eating and all of that. And it felt like an opportunity to really remodel and reimagine the urban landscape but I don't think it's, you know, I don't, I don't know how many places really jumped on that. Well, and obviously there's bureau- there's so many, I mean, it's such a difficult thing to accomplish, but it just felt like an opportunity that um, I wish had been kind of capitalized on, on a little bit more. Well, you know, what's happening now is that, you know, is, is that this is, our, this is our year to capitalize on it, right? Mm-hmm. Last year's budget was set when, when the pandemic set, mm-hmm. you know, the programming was right. set. So I'm waiting to see what happens this season. So I, I, I'm, I am, um, I'm actually more hopeful um, because we're still in the pandemic yeah. uh, into spring, but I, but I think that it's those habits, now the work of advocates is not getting people on bike, is keeping people on bikes, mm-hmm. right? So, so that's the work this year. Um, and so I think there's, again, that's where we have to make a shift in terms of what we're doing. Um, I do, I mean, I actually laugh, cause I don't know if you, but if, if someone told you all you needed to do to get people on bikes was start a global pandemic, yeah. would, would you have done it? You know what I mean? Um, most bike advocates- think about that. You think, right? But you know what I mean? But that was kind of what happened. But, but even think about um, the number of cities that actually closed streets. Like mm-hmm. they, they never thought they, they closed streets to traffic and made them available for people to walk on. Mm-hmm. Uh, here in the Twin Cities, we have what we call the Grand Rounds that, that wrap around this, the chain of lakes we have here and over to the Mississippi River. And they closed them last year to traffic, mm. totally closed them to traffic and they were packed. 
So I think that one, two things happened. The city did it and nobody lost their mind and people showed up. And, and, and the research we have initially says that communities of color showed up in heightened numbers compared to what we've done historically. Women showed up in higher numbers than what they have historically, right? I mean, children, people with children. So we actually kind of proved the mm. point that we were going, well, what would it take to do that? And that's, that's what it took. And so again, once those people were out, we decided, okay, we're gonna handle those introductory experiences, right? And so that became the goal of our efforts last summer was those, was those introductory experiences, even flowing from the Bikes for Essential Workers was, well, you got a new bike now, what's the first thing you should know? Mm. And taking people in parking lots. I mean, mm. Rich, you know what I mean? Like taking mm. adults and saying, okay, these are the handlebars. Right. So when you're waiting for a thing, this is what you do. You put your pedal here and put your foot on it mm-hmm. and you're not rolling yet. But now, but squeeze your brakes when you're sitting still on your bike because that keeps it from rolling. Mm. You know, lean your bike over to you when you step over it instead of throwing it through. Like that's mm-hmm. just so rudimentary, right? Lean your bike over to you instead of throwing your leg over the seat. And you, everybody tries to do that. They all get a bike and they try to throw their leg over the seat. I'm like, dude, you're 40. You, your flexibility is that's done, right. right? But instead of saying that, I say, yeah. you know, let me make that easy. Lean your bike over and step over it. Well, the closing of the streets and all the people outpouring into them, I mean, that, that is, that's the community. Like that's the, the breeding ground for that's the right. community. So the question then becomes, can you make that stick? That's right. Everybody's so intent on like getting back to normal or some version of the way things used to be and we're myopic to the opportunity that we're being presented with. Yeah, I, I agree and I, and I think, but, but, it, but even in, in, you know, with that, like, so that's again, when we say, well, what is our work? Our work, you know, kind of related to the trial is to help people visualize a future that's different. Like it isn't getting back to mm-hmm. normal. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like, I think that's really important what you yeah. said is like, if that is, you know, what we, what we, we wanna get back to freedom, what we perceive as freedom, that's really more, do you wanna, what is it you wanna get back to? Um, but the number of people that have had more time with their kids this year, than they ever have before and appreciate them differently is tremendous. They may mm-hmm. never go back to work the same way they went back mm-hmm. to work, right? Um, so it is this thing where we have to help people focus on the realization of these other positive benefits and connect the emotional outcome of those benefits to them if we want them to stick. And and that's, you know, again, that's not the American way. We're always selling, you know, all the marketers have kind of found their way to make COVID-19 a springboard to buy more stuff. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, I think again, for all the advocates out there, our work this year is to identify everybody who got a bike and help them have a positive experience this mm-hmm. summer, help them have an expansive, progressive, growth-oriented experience with that bike they purchased, you know? Yeah. Um, and everybody who purchased a bike, because they're already sold out this year. Yeah. Yeah, you can't you can't get bikes. You can't get bikes in April. You know, April fifteenth. You can't get a bike. How much of that is because of the supply chain overseas in Asia, and how much of that is they're just not set up to build enough bikes for to meet the demand? Well, I you know I think it's it's both, right? The supply chain got shut down last year a little bit, and that affected things. But they've ramped up, you know. Um, but the bike shops are selling everything they have, everything yeah. they can get. Um, and people people want a bike. I mean, I just think that some people want a bike and, and even some of the bike shops that I frequently go to, I've gone to them and said, you know, do let us lead a community ride for all the new people who bought a bike. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that kind of, 
Like, like they have to be in the programming business too. See, so that that's was right. You know what I'm saying? Like, the bike, do the bike shops consider themselves yeah. in the business of offering programming? They don't. They don't. You no, know, they don't. And that that's another you know sort of missed opportunity. I mean, we we've seen the you know explosion of Peloton, which is a digital version of that. Um, and there are exceptions. There are extraordinary bike shops that do that's a right. great job with that. Um, and you see what Justin is doing with Rafa, his sponsor. Like he's always dropping by the shop and they got coffee and you know, like he's trying to create that. Um, and, and, and also kind of rewrite the Rafa story because it's such a, you know, sort of gentleman's, you know, right. super expensive brand. Um, but I think, and I think a lot of bike shops took stabs at that earlier on, but couldn't get enough traction. But I feel like there is an opportunity because people wanna be with each other. And That's right you can, for the most part, you know, safely ride with other people right now in That's the right. outdoors and we need more of that. Yeah, and, and, I, and what I, I, just, I just say to everybody, nature is the only safe space, mm-hmm. right? So how, whatever gets you in nature is worth, is worth the effort. And, and, and it, it literally is whatever gets you in nature, whatever gets you outdoors moving um, is absolutely um, worth it. And, yeah. And and again, what you're describing, you know, with with Justin, you know, with Rafa, you know, all of them. But what's the ultimate goal of those those activities is building community, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I think again, you know, that that's where I go. Are the are the bike shops in the programming business? If they think their good job is building community, it is, yeah. right? You know, that that's that's really the. That's the way we have to approach this, and it's um, in their it's in their economic self interest anyway, because it, it breeds loyalty to the brand. That's right, and 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 the nature of the way people work is progression. So they'll be buying a more expensive bike next time if if you get them going. They oh, there's right? no end to the amount of money the, that gets spent no ultimately end. over the course of their lifetime. That's right. If you hook them. That's exactly right. You hook <laughs> yeah. them. You hook yeah. them on the experiences. You yeah. know. And I think that is really, I mean, that's, that's what I mean. That's what I, that's what I see, you know, with people um, in terms of just generally how we, how we get people to stick with this. Mm-hmm. That's how mm-hmm. we, to get people to stick with this, we actually do have to have them have these new emotional experiences, right? Yeah. Where they have to have self-discovery, they build community, you know, they create some new memories. And and I think people are going to be hooked, and yeah. and so again, that's where we advocates have to shift our work now. Right, right. So you're what are you like sixty two, sixty one, sixty two? I mean, you are fit. <laughs> you look like I, I mean, you're not a day over thirty five. It's crazy. So, well, and your Twitter, your Twitter pro, your Twitter handle is like I am anti aging or something like that, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. You are aging in reverse. So what's the daily routine look like for you? You know, I, um, I, I, my workout is, uh, is really compact. I, I try to do a 75 minute workout, mm-hmm. you know, that's my goal, 75 minutes. You know, in the, in the summer, I'll bike a lot more, you know, I'll get out and biking, but that the routine is really kind of built around. I, I try to start the day um, with a 75 minute workout that's a mixture of cardio and some kind of strength training. And, and, and during COVID, um, what I, t- I never thought I'd work out indoors, but what I really discovered in the last really 12, 15 months is kettlebell. Mm. Um, and I found a really good uh, kettlebell kind of program introduction to it here locally. And, um, and, and it just really has been a monumental success in terms of me cool. sticking with my program and doing it yeah. at home. You, know? you don't need like some full gym. 
No, you, you really don't. Right? Yeah, and you and and the key is like, what's the what's the minimum thing you can like? You always have to be planning for the minimum thing mm-hmm. you can do, so then you have no excuse to skip it, right? Um, and that's a strategy that I started about five years ago. You know, just like, what's the minimum? Like, what's the thing that I always can do? Yeah, and that's seventy five minutes wound up being that thing, right? Yeah. Is that that I can? I never have an excuse to skip a seventy five minute workout. Right, and peppered in there all kinds of different skiing and boarding. And right, and then staying Camping active. and biking and yeah. all the kind of stuff that you and your family does. Yeah, so, yeah. And, I, and I think that has been, that's the, the other thing I kind of figure out too is, is that you, you don't use those activities for training, you train for those activities. Mm-hmm. Like, and especially as you get older, that's really important uh, to, to make that clear delineation between those two activities, you know? Meaning what? Meaning that you you can't use snowboard for training. Yeah, you have to train for snowboarding. Yeah, right. Yeah, so, especially as you get older. That's right. You know, I'm 54 now, and I've really had to confront that in a way that I've never had to before. That's right. And the sooner you learn that, the better. Yeah. So I so I love talking to 35 year old dudes. You know, because you're still invincible at 35. Yeah. Like you're you know you still remember your best day. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and. Um, and you kind of base everything on that, but I think um, that is that that that's that's really what I found. And snowboarding is a great example. This year, and this is they don't snowboard with thirteen-year-olds. Uh-huh. So I was uh, this year I actually snowboarded, <laughs> was snowboarding with some thirteen-year-olds, and decided you know I was hanging with them. We were just talking, and they and they've only been snowboarding a year, right? Uh-huh. So I'm like, so we're doing these rollers. And I don't know what I did. I went over this one roller and came down and fell right on my chest. Mm. Right, and I'm going. My ribs hurt. Yeah, and hurt ribs hurt. I just want you to know that. I was just like, because yeah. you use them for breathing, and it's like, man, that was you don't rough. bounce back as quick. You don't bounce back as yeah. quick. So yeah, don't don't hang out yeah. with 13 year olds. That's dangerous for you. All right, man. Well, last thing, and then I'll let you go. I I, I want to leave people with you know really your philosophy of outdoor space and and um and and really broadening access uh, to it for all different types of people, particularly people who, who have lacked that kind of connection in their lives. So what can you kind of take us out with on that subject? You know what, I, I really believe that outdoors, nature and adventure, like kind of those activities are the best place for us to actually grow and experience this thing around social emotional learning. Like I, I think when we really talk about the outcomes of what we do, then when we talk about sport, I think sports as we know it has convinced us that it is this petri dish for you know human development, right? And youth development. And I say not unless you're intentional, but something about outdoors is always about personal best. It's always about situational awareness, right? It's always about you know, they're always about skills development. So the, so the best athlete won't always be the best climber, right? It's the person who masters the skills. The best skier will not be the best athlete. It'll be the person that focuses on a mastering the skills, right? So, so they're progressive skill-based. They create opportunities for us to have self-discovery. You know, they're personal best oriented. Again, this idea of controlling yourself in an environment that you have no control over. That's the stuff that life is made of. And I actually think that outdoors and nature offer that opportunity to everybody who shows up. Everybody who shows up can have that experience outdoors. And, and for communities of color, 
from marginalized community. What I know is that those experiences are the ones that build your humanity, your confidence, that help you understand beyond racism's impact on you. In a simple example, and we can, you all can go test this, I believe that women who spend time outdoors have a much higher body concept than the average person because everything in the world wants women to hate their bodies. I think outdoors activities, hiking, biking, climbing, you know, there are these things we do. It actually reframes your relationship to your body mm-hmm. around its ability to do work instead of the aesthetic, right? And so this balance that nature, outdoors, and adventure offers to the messages, you know what I mean? Is really, really seminal. And I, and I believe that's an opportunity for everybody and for, for communities of color. It's an opportunity that we don't see in our arsenal. So that's my message to them is tell me about the humans you want your kids to be. And my answer is always gonna be take them outside. Mm. Boom, beautifully put, my friend. We did it, Anthony. Well, thank you. How do you Thanks feel? Thanks so much. I feel good, it's feel good to good. meet you. Thank that was you good, so man. That was very cool. I appreciate all the work that you're doing. It's cool man. that you know yeah. a lot of the people that I admire. Uh, we just, cool we just scratched the surface. So yeah, I'm sure there's I'm sure there's many more. So I'd love to do this with you again at some point. So that was really fantastic. Yeah, I, would I love appreciate you. it. Thank you so All much. Right, and, thank and you. Welcome. Thanks. Peace. Lance. Thanks for listening, everybody. For links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube. Sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course always appreciated. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page on richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis. Portraits by Allie Rogers and Davey Greenberg. Graphic elements courtesy of Jessica Miranda. Copywriting by Georgia Whaley. And our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. You can find me at richroll.com or on Instagram and Twitter at richroll. I appreciate the love. I love the support. I don't take your attention for granted. Thank you for listening. See you back here soon. Peace. Plants. Namaste.